Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. Let's look to the Scriptures now. If you want to open your Bibles to uh, the book of Mark. We are in chapter 13. Um, As I like to say, it would be very helpful for you to have a a Bible open in front of you, and I think particularly with this passage because we're going to be looking at a lot of the details of this text. So um, if you don't have a Bible, didn't bring one with you, paperback Bibles underneath the chairs in front of you somewhere, you can find one and open to page 495. 495, that's where Mark 13 can be found. We're moving our way through the book of Mark here, just kind of one passage at a time. A point that I like to make, and you've heard me say this before, uh, hopefully, and I say it repeatedly because I I want all of us to be eager to know the Scriptures, to be students of God's Word. And so one of the things that I like to say is that the Bible can be understood. Um, it It is clear in many ways. It is not too hard for you or for me. To, to gain a basic understanding of what the Scriptures teach. Our confession of faith says that things necessary to know and believe are so clearly explained in the Scriptures that anyone, no matter how much education you have, can understand them. And I'm talking about basic things like what Pastor Brian explained to us just a little while ago, our sinfulness before God, but the mercy and love of God and sending us a Savior who lived a perfect life for us and laid down His life for us and is resurrected from the dead and calls on us to repent and believe in Him and then give our lives to Him, these things are clearly articulated in the Scriptures. But our confession also says that not all things in Scripture are equally plain or clear. And today we get to just such a passage, Mark chapter 13 definitely the most difficult chapter in the book of Mark to understand. Some say it is one of, if not the most difficult chapter to understand in the Bible. So, uh, makes me a a little apprehensive here in how I handle uh, the Scriptures. So, uh, pray for this sermon. But what we're going to be looking at here is what is called the Olivet Discourse. It's called Olivet Discourse because it's based on words that Jesus spoke when He was on the Mount of Olives. It's also explained to us in Matthew 24 and Luke 21, but we're here looking at Mark's account uh, of this Olivet Discourse in chapter 13. Now, the topic that is being discussed here is a, a big theological word called eschatology. We're getting into the topic of eschatology. That's the study of last things. That's um, the study of what the Scripture says about what's going to happen in the future. And so that's why I'm calling this sermon Jesus in the Future. But you notice that little number one there, (laughs) because this is going to take us a little time. And so we're going to take three different sermons to work our way through Mark chapter 13. This is part one. We'll look at part two next Sunday, part three the Sunday after that. Um, This topic of eschatology, it's one that people very often find themselves interested in. And sometimes people find themselves very opinionated about matters of eschatology. Because when we talk about eschatology, what we're talking about is subjects like the rapture, 
the Antichrist, the Mark of the Beast, 666, Armageddon, all of these biblical things that we hear about, about what's going to happen in the future and what happens is people get very obsessed with these things. And very often, um, people will spend a lot of time evaluating world events and affairs going on on the international stage as a way of trying to interpret what is called the signs of the times. And we look and see what's happening all over the world and draw conclusions from that about whether we're in the last days or not, whether Jesus is about to return or not. And it's very interesting. And a lot of people get, again, kind of obsessed about it. There was even a book series called The Left Behind Series many years ago that was very, very popular. And uh, movies were made about the Left Behind Series. And so there is great interest in this topic. But I want to forewarn you this morning that some of the things that I'm going to say about this passage might be different than what you have heard before. What I'm going to give is an interpretation of this text that might challenge some of the things that you have assumed have been true about the signs of the times and the signs of Jesus' second coming. But what I want us to do is to humbly submit ourselves to the teaching of the Scriptures, and I would like to ask for your patience to stick with me here, uh, not only today but also through the three sermons here uh, in this section of Mark, Jesus and the future. So, by way of review, very quickly, remember what we have been talking about here through Mark chapter 12 is Jesus has been under fire, right? He's been engaged in all of these discussions. He's been challenged, been getting into these various debates with scribes and Pharisees, and all of this has been taking place in the temple, the temple in Jerusalem. And the time has now come for Jesus to leave the temple. He's done with these discussions. He's finished. And so our chapter begins with Jesus leaving. Remember again, this is Holy Week. Jesus is just days away from going to the cross, and he engages in this discussion in chapter 13 about the future. So if you're able to stand, please do so out of respect for the reading of God's Word. And I'm going to read the first 13 verses. We'll finish the chapter in the next couple of weeks, but let's just start with these first 13 verses. Mark 13. <clears throat> it says, And as he, that is Jesus, and as Jesus came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, tell us, when will these things be and what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? And Jesus began to say to them, see that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of the birth pains. But be on your guard. 
for they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father is child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. Holy Spirit, would you please open our eyes and our hearts to behold wonderful things in your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. So one thing I think that Jesus is doing in this passage is He is offering cautions or warnings to us about the way we understand events going on in our world and the way we look to the future. There's, there's some cautions here, and so my, my points are worded in the negative. They're, they're kind of things that we shouldn't do, things we should be careful about. And the first thing that I want to show you is, is this. Do not mistake external appearance for internal reality. Now, this doesn't really relate so much to the future um, as much as the other points in the rest of the sermons in this little brief mini-series will, will do, but I think we need to cover this in order to understand what is going to come later. Do not mistake external appearance for internal reality. Just looking at these first couple of verses, okay? This is just kind of getting us started. See verse 1, Jesus comes out of the temple. temple. He leaves the temple, and one of the disciples says to him, this disciple is not named, but the disciple says, look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And so this disciple is making reference here to the temple in Jerusalem, the temple where people would come to worship, where the priests would go to offer sacrifices for the sins of the people. Now, brief history of the temple. If we go all the way back in the history of Israel, remember Israel is um, they, they are uh, liberated from Egypt, and they go into the wilderness, and they build a tabernacle, right? That was the first kind of location that they built in order to worship, but it wasn't until Solomon came, Solomon, David's son, that the first temple was built, and that was described for us, 1 Kings 6 and 7, and that's where God's people went to worship, first temple. Now, that temple was destroyed in 587 B.C., 587 years before Christ came. It was the Babylonians who came, judged Israel under God's sovereignty. Israel was exiled to the Babylonians, to Babylon. Temple came down. That was the first temple. But as you recall, God's people were released from Babylon, and they were allowed to go back to Jerusalem, and that was under the leadership of Ezra and Nehemiah later in the Old Testament. And so, when the Jews came back to Jerusalem, they built a second temple after their return from exile. So, again, Ezra Nehemiah describes that. Now, what happened to that temple between the time that it was rebuilt and the time that Jesus came is is a little bit unclear, but it did fall into disrepair. It just kind of, it, it was damaged. It was not necessarily destroyed, but it was brought into disrepair. And so, when King Herod came along, who was alive at the time of of Jesus' life, Herod 
decided to rebuild this temple. And so we might call it a rebuilt uh, a rebuilding of the second temple. You might call it a, a third temple. But Herod comes and he rebuilds the, the temple. And this, this is a picture of what the temple probably looked like, kind of a model of Herod's temple. And there is no question that it was an unbelievable, astonishing, and amazing accomplishment. Um, it was much bigger than Solomon's temple, at least twice as large. It, it took over 50 years to build it. And at the time that we're seeing the disciples here referring to this temple, it was still under construction. Uh, it was bigger than any temple in the world at the time. You see, it wasn't just um, a, a building, but actually an enclosure that included many buildings. The picture kind of cuts off uh, where the uh, courtyards go to the right and to the left, but <clears throat> the total area of the whole structure could contain 35 football fields. This is a big place. And the disciples are talking about the wonderful stones, it says in verse 1. Some of these stones could be as long as 60 feet long. I mean, how they transported those stones, I, I don't know. I'm guessing 60 feet is what? I mean, close to here in the door in the back, maybe, or a little bit shorter than that, maybe. Phenomenal. Enormous stones, the whole thing was covered in gold. When the sun rose, it shined on the temple, and the light reflecting off the temple was near blinding. You could hardly look at the place, and it just gave it this sense of glory. By anybody's estimation, this was an impressive place. The disciples are impressed. But do you know one person who's not impressed? Jesus. He's not impressed. He didn't care how big this building is. In fact, look what he says in verse 2. You see these great buildings? He says to the disciples, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. It, it's a double negative. Really what he means, if we want to put it into the positive, is this. What he's saying is the whole thing is coming down. It's going to be a pile of rubble. See these great stones? It's just going to be a pile in the future. Why is Jesus saying this? Because there has been so much godlessness and corruption in this temple that it is going to be judged by God. God's patience is over. You remember when Jesus came into Jerusalem, he went into the temple at the start of chapter 11. What was the first thing he did? Overturned the tables of the money changers, cast them out of the temple, called the place a den of robbers. Here you are exchanging all this money. This is a house of prayer for all nations. There's no room for people to even come and seek God, and here you are exchanging money. That's just a picture of the corruption, an evidence of the corruption. And most of all, the Jewish leaders running this temple didn't accept Jesus as Messiah. Here God sends the Savior, and all they do is argue with Him, and as we've seen many times, they are on a mission to kill Him. And so Jesus says, this, this place is going to be judged. This place is coming down. Now, my point here is just a caution, because we tend to be people who are very impressed by external appearances. And we see great big churches in different cities, and it might be our temptation to think, wow, the Lord must really be at work in that place. And that is not necessarily the case. 
I don't mean to be critical of large churches. There's nothing wrong with large churches, but large buildings have no necessary connection to what kind of spiritual vitality is going on inside the building. God is not impressed with external appearance. He is not uh, impressed by external appearances as much as He is impressed by the faith and godliness of those inside the building, the church, the congregation of His people. This is not a criticism of buildings in general. I'm glad for our building here. Our building is kind of rather large, actually, as well. We have no plans of leaving our building. There's no necessary sign of spiritual maturity. If people are meeting in somebody's living room, there's nothing particularly advantageous about having a house church. There are among some people this kind of movement against church buildings. Let's be like they did in the New Testament, just meet in houses. The reason why they met in houses in the New Testament is because they were a fringe, alienated, persecuted group. They didn't have any resources to build a building. There's nothing wrong with a building, but the building is no measure of spirituality. So do not mistake external appearance for internal reality. Now, for, for, this, for, for the purpose of what we're looking at today, something that's very important to understand is that when Jesus says in verse 2 that this whole place is coming down, that absolutely happened. This is not debated. This is a historical fact. That temple came down. In 70 A.D., this, what we're reading about is occurring about 33 or so A.D., less than 40 years later, Jesus' prediction came absolutely true. And we can look to sources even outside the Bible. There's a guy named Josephus, a Jewish historian, who wrote this about the temple. Caesar ordered the whole city, that's Jerusalem, and the temple to be razed to the ground. It was so completely leveled to the ground as to leave future visitors to the spot, no ground for believing that it had ever been inhabited. Every stone is coming down. That's what Jesus predicted, and that's what happened. We take from this some encouragement. Our God, our Savior, knows the future, and what He says is going to happen will happen, and here is clear evidence of that. So, don't mistake external appearance for internal reality. Now, second thing to consider is this. Now, we're considering more how this relates to eschatology or the future. Do not panic when you hear of trouble in the world. Don't panic when you hear of trouble in the world. So, let's look at the text. Verse 3, they're on the Mount of Olives, Olivet Discourse. It's opposite the temple. The Mount of Olives was about 300 feet higher than Jerusalem, provided a very good view looking down onto the temple. And what these disciples have just heard from Jesus about this building coming down would have been shocking. It would have been maybe similar to somebody saying to you, if you were in Washington, D.C., looking at the Capitol building, this whole thing is going to be a pile of rubble. The White House, it's going to come down, it's going to be a pile of rubble. You know, you'd be You'd be shocked. You'd have some questions about that, wouldn't you? Uh, how do you know? And when's that going to happen? What are you talking about? And that's exactly what happens here. We have Peter, James, John, and Andrew mentioned there in verse 3. So they've got questions for Jesus about when this is going to happen. Tell us, verse 4, when will these things be and what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? So, you notice this question is divided into two parts. They're asking when, and they're asking what. 
When will this happen? And what will be the sign? And the phrase used here that's important for us to notice is these things. When will all these things be accomplished? Now, what, what, what is meant by these things? I mean, it's pretty clear, isn't it, if we look at the context that these things refers to what Jesus just said about the temple coming down. Those are the things they're asking about. When will the temple come down, and what will be the sign that the temple will come down? Many Christians look at this passage, myself included, over the years I've looked at this passage, and I've thought that what this is talking about are signs about when Jesus is going to come again. But that doesn't fit the context. What Jesus is explaining here what Jesus is going to be answering are these questions about when this is going to happen, what will be the sign, and the reference point, the antecedent in this case, is the destruction of the temple. So here's the big challenge and why this chapter is so difficult to interpret is because there are two different events described in the chapter. There is the destruction of the temple, but there is also the second coming of Jesus. And those two things are addressed in this chapter. The big controversy, the difference of opinion comes when we try to figure out which parts are talking about which event. And so that's, that's where it gets tr tricky. But I'm suggesting to you today that as we look at verses 5 through 13, the rest of this passage in this sermon, that what is in view here is a direct answer to a question about the destruction of the temple, not about the second coming of Jesus. So, Here's the question, what? What will be the sign? We're going to talk about that next week. What, the, the answer to that question, what will be the sign of the destruction of the temple, starts in verse 14. Today we're just talking about when. When is this going to happen? When will the temple be destroyed? So let's go on. Verse 5, Jesus begins to say to them in response to their question, see that no one leads you astray. So here's a, here's a caution. Be careful, he's saying talking about eschatology, talking about future things. Be careful. Here's where people get really mixed up. Here's where people very easily get deceived. So, don't be led astray. Be careful. But then Jesus here mentions various kinds of trouble that we experience in this life, and they come in, in basically, I think, three categories here. One, He talks about false prophets. Verse 6, false prophets prophets. Many will come in my name saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. I mean, lots of false prophets. Again, Josephus, the Jewish historian, as he is writing about these events, said false prophets and false messiahs were everywhere at this time. And we even see this in the book of Acts. And here's something I think is important to understand this chapter well, is to realize that so much of what is being described here is fulfilled in the book of Acts. In the years following the resurrection of Jesus, the description of the beginning of the church. And so here is an example in Acts 5. For before these days, this is a member of the Jewish council speaking here. He says, Before these days, uh, Theudas rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. And after him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. These are false messiahs, false prophets. They came on the scene, and they came to nothing. 
But Acts 5 is a fulfillment of exactly what Jesus is saying is going to happen. False prophets, false messiahs are going to come. Um, there's also references here to international conflict, global conflict. Look at verses 7 and 8. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place. Uh, verse 8, for nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There's going to be international conflict. Nations are going to come to war with one another. Now, as we reflect on the history of the world, we know that there has never really been a time of peace when nations weren't fighting each other, right? I mean, has that ever been the case in the world, where the world's been entirely at peace and there's been no wars whatsoever? I don't remember that time. I mean, it's a lot of human history, I know, but... um, The world's always in conflict. When I was growing up in high school, the rumors of wars were always going on about the Soviet Union and the threat of nuclear war. We're just on the cusp of a war with the Soviet Union. Not that that was unrealistic. It could have happened for sure, but it was rumors of war all the time. And today we hear rumors of war about war with China. We're just on the cusp of a war with China. Some people are talking about rumors of a civil war even within the United States. I don't know what it is about people. We have this morbid curiosity with rumors of war. It just happens repeatedly. But there's one other thing here uh, that is mentioned, and that is natural calamities. In verse 8, nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. There's going to be trouble in the world is what Jesus is saying. Um, Another historian, a guy named Tacitus. This is a guy who was known as the foremost Roman historian, uh, said this. He's writing this history of this time period, and this is in the preface, and he says, the history on which I am entering is that of a period rich in disasters, terrible in battles, torn by civil struggles, horrible even in peace. Four emperors fell by the sword. There were three civil wars, more foreign wars, and often at the same time. Wars conflict, trouble. Do you remember when Paul and Silas in the book of Acts were in prison and they were freed, the doors threw open? Do you remember that? In Acts 12, maybe? It's in Acts, Paul and Silas in prison. Why did the doors fly open? Do you remember? It was an earthquake. There was an earthquake. And so here again, we're seeing Jesus' prophecy about earthquakes coming true even here in the book of Acts. When will these things happen? That's the question. And what Jesus is talking about here are these common occurrences of trouble and difficulty. But now, look with me at verse 7. Look what Jesus says at the end of verse 7. This must take place, but the end is not yet. The end is not yet. Do you see? He seems to be saying the exact opposite of what we have for so long thought he was saying. These are not signs of the end. These are non-signs. What Jesus is saying is when you see these things happen, they're not indicators of the end. The end is not yet. What he seems to be saying is that this is what it's like to live in a fallen world. Don't panic when you hear of trouble in the world. These are not signs of the end. They are normal occurrences. And so in verse 7, again, take a look at what he says. Do not be alarmed. Don't panic when you see trouble in the world. It's a world that's fallen. It's a world in which sin and wickedness and evil prevail in so many different ways. So when you hear 
about the war in Ukraine, and when you hear about climate change and how the earth is going to be destroyed in five or ten years, or you hear about a new COVID strain, or monkeypox, or serial killers, or whatever it is that you're hearing that's just talking about the trouble in the world, here's how a Christian reacts to that. We do not panic. We are not alarmed. We know that the world has fallen. We know there's trouble in this world. Jesus has told us to take heart because He's overcome the trouble in the world. We don't live in fear. We know that God is in control. Psalm 46, be still and know that He is God. Don't panic. So that seems to be what Jesus is saying here. These are non-signs. These are not signs of the end. These are things that happen on a regular basis. Okay? So let's go to the third thing. Do not be surprised when the Christian life is hard. Also, do not be surprised when the Christian life is hard. If we look at the end of verse 8, these are but the beginning of birth pains. Birth pains, those are difficult, right? Mothers can tell us that. <laughs> Uncomfortable, they're, they're, they're painful. But notice it doesn't say these are the end of the birth pains. These are things that are happening to show that we're at the end. These are the beginning these, these things will be expected to continue. These, this is normalcy in a fallen world. And in this case in particular, when Jesus is talking about the hardness of life, He's talking about persecution. And so He gives three forms of persecution uh, here in these final verses. There is, I'm going to call it secular persecution. Uh, that's verse Nine, be on your guard. They will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues. You will stand before governors and kings for my sake. Governors and kings, those are not religious authorities. Those are secular authorities. Again, you look in the book of Acts, and you see it happening repeatedly, particularly for Paul in Acts 24. He's before Felix. Acts 25, he's standing before Festus. These are secular governmental authorities. What Jesus is promising happens to Paul, but there's also religious authorities persecution. Also there in verse 9, I just read it, for they will deliver you over to councils. You'll be beaten in synagogues. That's a place of worship. I mean, very often we think of secular authorities perhaps opposing the church. What Jesus is saying here is there might be persecution even within the church. And so, we see this again in the book of Acts. Peter and the apostles, right? They're out preaching the gospel and what happens? Well, here's Acts 5, 40 to 41. When they had called in the apostles, they beat them. So Jesus said it was going to happen. They beat them, charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name, rejoicing that they were beaten <laughs> because they were beaten for Jesus. So, what Jesus is saying here, religious persecution, this is going to happen. Now, there's a great promise here in verse 11. What Jesus says is, when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, for, uh, but say whatever is given to you in that hour, for it's not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. So, that's a, a promise that when you get turned over to the authorities, the Spirit is going to be with you. The Spirit is going to tell you what to say in that moment. Now, we've got to be very careful with this because I've seen people abuse this text. I've seen pastors and teachers abuse this text. And what they'll say is, I'm not going to prepare for my sermon. I'm not going to prepare for teaching. I'm just going to trust the Holy Spirit to tell me what to say in the moment. 
And, and that would be an unfortunate conclusion to, to draw here. The, the command here is not don't repair, don't prepare. The command is don't be anxious. Don't worry. If, if you are called before an authority under the occasion of persecution, the Holy Spirit will be with you. He will give you what to say. And guess what? In the book of Acts, it's exactly what happened. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest, Caiaphas, John, Alexander, all who were in the high priestly fam family. And when they had set them, that's the apostles in their midst, they inquired, by what power, by what name do you do this? Then Peter filled with the Holy Spirit. That's the fulfillment of what Jesus is saying in verse 11 of chapter 13 of Mark. The Spirit came and gave blessing. Well, there's one other form of persecution here, and that is personal persecution. You see that in verse 12. Brother will deliver brother over to death. Father is child. Children will rise against parents. Have them put to death. The gospel can potentially be so can generate such controversy that it might result in divisions even within the family. That your father's against you, your mother's against you, your sister, your brother, your son, <clears throat> your daughter. Remember Jesus said, I came not to bring peace but to bring a sword? That when it comes to an allegiance to Jesus, sometimes that results in hostility even from those who are closest to us. But friends, again, considering the context here, these are not signs of the times. These are signs of being a Christian in any time, at any point. We here in America have been free of persecution for the last 250 years of the history of our nation. We're grateful for that, but Christians in America have been an unusual aberration in the course of history. Christians for the majority of history have suffered persecution and rejection in various ways. And I would say, friends, that today, if we are going to take a biblical stand on certain issues like that of the sanctity of life and heterosexual marriage, if we're going to speak against transgender ideology, which is seeking to give permission to, for the mutilation of the bodies of children, if we are going to make a stand for Jesus as the only way of salvation, if we're going to talk about things like what Pastor Brian talked about a moment ago and our confession declared about the reality of hell and the fact that people go there who don't know Jesus, then you better be ready for persecution. Don't be surprised when the Christian life is hard. If you're going to be a faithful Christian, you know what it says in 2 Timothy 3.12, all who desire to live a godly life will be persecuted. There's no condition there. You desire to be godly, you will be persecuted. A legitimate question I think to ask is, if I'm not being persecuted, am I living a godly life? It's worth asking. What the New Testament teaches us is that this is something that is normal, not signs of the time, okay? One other thing here as, as we close, there's one verse here I haven't talked about yet, and you might be thinking, yeah, Bob, but what about verse 10? Because verse 10 says the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And that certainly hasn't happened. So this must be talking about Jesus coming. 
can't be referring to the temple. We know the temple was destroyed, but the gospel hasn't been preached to all nations yet. So, what, what do we do with this? Well, if we look at other passages in the New Testament, for instance, here's Colossians 1, 5 and 6. Paul says this, we always thank God because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing. Paul seems to think the gospel had gone to the whole world. Romans 1, um, 1, 8, you can look up that on your own time, says the same thing. The gospel has been proclaimed to the whole world. I think the way to read this is, you know, they didn't have iPhones, they didn't have atlases, they weren't aware of the vastness of the entire globe. They didn't know where Australia was and Japan was. When they talk about all nations, they're talking about Gentiles, number one, but when they think about the world, they're just thinking about the Mediterranean world. They're talking about what was visible and knowledgeable to them at the time. And so as the gospel reaches these various places, the temple will be destroyed. I think that's a better way to read that verse, not saying that we got to get the gospel to every nation in the world so that Jesus will come back. Now, this does not for a moment minimize the urgency of following the Great Commission and going and getting the gospel to all nations. That's why we're going to Croatia, and we are committed to that. There's nothing that disputes that. It's just that we shouldn't read this as a connection to the second coming of Jesus. So, um, yeah, that's a lot to take in. <laughs> for a Sunday morning. We'd love to hear your perspective on, on some of these things. But, uh, you know, bottom line is Jesus is talking about the temple being destroyed. Disciples are saying, when's it going to happen? And Jesus is saying, here are all these things. They happen all the time, and they're not signs of the end. These are normal things for what it is to be a Christian. Now, let me also offer one more caution. Let's not let the unclear things, the complicated things, the controversial things, the things on which we might disagree, let's not let them obscure the clear things. Because here's one thing we know for sure about the end, about the future. Jesus is coming again, and He's coming for us. <laughs> and when He comes again, He is going to make everything wrong right. He is going to fix everything that is broken. He's going to wipe away every tear from our eyes. He's going to make everything right, and every knee is going to bow and declare Him Lord. We don't disagree on that, do we? That's going to happen. And so let's say, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Lord, thank You for Your Word, and we do acknowledge, Lord, our need for Your Spirit to help us understand complex passages. So, Father, whatever has been said in error today, I pray that that would fall away, but whatever is of truth, may it root itself in our hearts and minds that, Lord, we would take seriously the task of living for You right now, not being surprised about the trouble in the world, not being surprised when our lives are hard. Give us grace, we pray, Lord, to persevere to the end. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.